You can keep up with all the episodes of the Journalism Salute by checking out our newsletter. The link is at the bottom of the show notes. Hope you'll subscribe. And let us know where you're listening from and what you think of the podcast. Email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Alexa Imani Spencer. Alexa reports on racial health equality for Word in Black, a newsroom that frames narratives and fosters solutions for racial inequities in America. It was founded after the murder of George Floyd. She previously worked for the Memphis Commercial Appeal and also writes about maternal health. And she draws upon her experience as a doula helping women through labor to deliver babies. Alexa is a graduate of Howard University. She's from Pensacola, Florida, and now lives in Austin, Texas. Hi, Alexa. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. So what's your journalism origin story? This is a story that I love to tell. I actually started doing journalism in the eighth grade. After transitioning out of track and into journalism, I joined the yearbook at my middle school, went on to write, design, and do photography for our yearbook. And as I went into high school, I picked up a photojournalism class. My commitment to journalism, however, didn't come until my senior year of high school. So in the summer of 2014, I was chilling with a friend before we started school and we were all on Twitter or X at that time. And while I was scrolling, I saw the body of Mike Brown Jr. fatally shot, laying on concrete in Ferguson, Missouri. And that really radicalized me because this young man was my age and I was becoming more and more exposed to fatal police shootings at that time and was wondering what I could do about it beyond protesting in in the Austin area. So I did commit to journalism my senior year in high school after witnessing um, his murder and went on to study journalism in college. And it's okay. It's interesting that you could have chosen other ways to, I suppose, express that, but you picked journalism. Is there anything in your background or family or heritage that lent itself that maybe would have steered you that way? Well, I've been a writer my entire life. I started writing poetry at four years old, primarily because my mother is a poet, um, a spoken word artist, so I was exposed pretty young. My family is full of artists, so I naturally gravitated uh, toward writing. I actually just read one of your poems on Twitter, as a matter of fact, <laughs> right before we started. So you you mentioned that you graduated from Howard. We both mentioned it. How did going to an HBCU kind of shape you as a journalist? I believe going to an HBCU was the safest space for me to be shaped as a journalist, particularly a Black woman journalist in the United States of America, a place that is still reckoning with its history of racism, sexism, oppression, etc. It was a safe space because I could freely investigate issues impacting my community without wor- without worrying if my concerns in the field would be recognized or if they would be honored or certain topics I could discuss that would have been considered taboo at a predominantly white institution. 
And I can say that confidently because I attended predominantly white schools um, during my K through 12 education. So at Howard, I had amazing people around me, journalists who have been in the game doing this work. Particularly one person stands out to me, Ingrid Sturgis. She's currently the chair at Howard's journalism department. And she was very influential in opening doors for me in the field, including Dr. Lamb. She was actually the chair of the department at that time. And when I was in school, and I could just walk into her office and share all of my dreams and goals. And in a matter of minutes, she would have somebody on the phone offering me an opportunity. So I never had to change who I was to do this work. I was never asked to change my hairstyle. I was never asked to even simmer down my, my Southern accent. I was never asked to change, but I was encouraged to show up um, in doing this work. Now, you've since gone on to work for Word in, in Black, a, as I mentioned before, a newsroom that focuses on solutions and narratives related to racial inequities in America. But you've also done something else that I mentioned. You've been a doula. What is that like? Being a doula is something I can never put away. When I talk to women that I'm interviewing and I mention that, yes, I was once a doula, it seems as though saying that I've retired is kind of false. I feel like it's something I'll never be able to walk away from. It seems ingrained in me. I became a doula certified in January of 2020. So this was a couple of months before the pandemic. Nobody knew it was coming. I surely didn't know it was coming. And I got the certification after transitioning out of journalism for a bit. And it was an amazing experience. I was able to help many women virtually with prenatal and postpartum care being their emotional support person. It doesn't matter where they were located in the U.S., but being the person that they could go to if they had nobody else to turn to. And then also helping women in person and birth was also life-changing. One thing that strikes me is that both journalism and being a doula both require a lot of empathy. And it strikes me that, that, you, that I presume you've put that to use in both fields, right? That's correct. And I come from how many generations of women in my family were caregivers. Um, my mother is a caregiver. My grandmother was a caregiver. Her mother was a caregiver and her mother was a caregiver. So that's four generations before wow. me, women who worked in domestic jobs, whether it was home health care. Obviously, some of them were working during segregation. So being nannies and cooks for a lot of times for families that just didn't respect them as well. So it's, it's definitely in my blood. So what were some of the turning point moments along the way for you in your journalism career and including the time as a doula that led you to get to the point where you are now with Word in Black? That's a good question. At the time that I was really hunkering down into my career, well, preparing to enter my career, probably my junior and senior year in college. At the same time, I was meeting a lot of doulas. I was hanging out with midwives in DC, just learning more about maternal health. So maternal health care, as well as reporting, those two interests were simmering at the same time. And it made me realize how passionate I am about health. So many lives are impacted when we don't have the information that we need to live our best lives health-wise. 
And so I thought, okay, boom, I'm either going to go into reporting or I'm going to go into being a doula, one of those ways, because it'll help me help people live longer, live better lives. And so I'm kind of, sorry, I'm kind of getting away from your question. It's fine. The moment, you know, I'll say this, when I was working my first job post-graduation, I was working in the breaking news beat. Now this was in Memphis, Tennessee. And Memphis is a place where gun violence is rampant. I had previously reported on crime, justice, police, gun violence throughout my entire college career. I just knew that this was the beat that I was gonna take on post-grad. I didn't know, however, how much of an impact writing and reporting about that 24 seven, especially on a local level, the impact that would have on me. So when I went into this beat, um, honestly, I did not want to go into this beat full time. I actually was fighting with my editor in chief at the time because I was writing breaking news part time and it was already impacting me mentally. Seeing and writing about black children being fatally shot every single week and then having to go to vigils for these kids and witness the community live out their trauma over and over again was hard because how can you separate yourself from this community when you look just like them? That could have been my niece, that could have been my nephew, my uncle, my aunt, et cetera. And so that was the first time where I started to notice, okay, something's not right with my mental health here. Like I'm going home and I'm feeling very triggered. I'm not sleeping well at night. And mind you, when you're reporting locally, you're literally living in the community where the oppression, the trauma, the homicides are happening. So it can be a lot. So long story short, there was a day where I knew I would have to take a break. My editor called me on like a Saturday and was like, hey, can you go out to this neighborhood? There was a shooting. A young boy and a young girl have died. We need to try to talk to the family. I knew this was a terrible idea because it was so soon after the, the murders that the family is probably triggered. I mean, if my kids or somebody that I love were shot and killed, I wouldn't want anybody coming up to my door a couple of days after asking me questions, let alone the news. If, it, if it's anyone, let it be somebody who's bringing resources. So I was fighting it, but I, I just, I said, okay, I'm gonna just go. And I remember camping outside of this person's home, feeling uneasy the entire time. And eventually I, I couldn't bring myself to get out the car and go knock on the door. They saw me camping out across the street. I probably wasn't the first news person to be doing that, unfortunately. And they opened the door and flashed a gun at me. And I, and this was a black person. And I knew at this moment, if I'm gonna do this work, I cannot do it like this. I'm participating in further traumatizing a community that is already dealing with the burial of two kids. And so that was just a moment where I question what I'm willing to tolerate as a reporter, how far am I willing to go, and where am I going to draw the lines? And Word, word in Black is different in that I, it seems to me, just from reading what you've done, you have some control over your beat. Can you explain to us what Word in Black is and just walk us through? Absolutely. Word in Black is a national digital newsroom as you mentioned, it was founded after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. At that time, 10 Black news publishers around the country came together and said, hey, 
We want to create a collective voice for the Black press, and we also want to create a national digital presence. So I am a reporter on Word and Black's team, um, particularly a health reporter. I write about health inequities and solutions. So my work, as well as my coworkers' work, they're funneled to these local newspapers. So they can print our work in their papers. They can put them on their website. They can also localize the issues that we're writing about on a national level and vice versa. Their local work is funneled to us and we can nationalize it and also um, share it on our website. This is a trend in journalism. The episode that we're airing preceding our interview with you is about the same kind of group doing uh, work in environmental reporting. Um, and this seems to be a trend. You're essentially creating versions of the Associated Press that focus very on very specific um, topics. Let's talk about uh, story ideas. How do you come up with them? Well, because I write particularly about the Black community, a lot of my story ideas are they just come from my lived experience. They come from living as a low-income Black person in the U.S., trying to make it without uh, health care, trying to make it living in a food desert, just various inequities I've lived so I can actually write about them. But other than that, I keep my ear to the ground. X is still a great place for folks to keep keep track of what's going on. Um, so I'm going to run through a couple, and we'll just talk about uh, the different pieces that you've written. In May, you drew upon your doula experience. You wrote about the Black maternity care deserts within the United States, focusing specifically on a woman in Macomb, Mississippi. You spoke to a woman in healthcare strategy who basically said, look, it's tough enough on Black moms knowing their children are being born into racist societies. Not having to access to good healthcare just makes it that much worse. What was the process of writing that one like? For that particular story, I wanted to have three different elements. I wanted to have data about maternity care deserts, which there's plenty of that out there. I wanted to have a person who was living in a maternity care desert to kind of give us some color, give us the real, let us know what it's like to live in that place that we are, we're creating in these stories. And then also I wanted an expert for lack of better words. I say an expert, but just somebody who is a scholar who's working in the field because I believe a regular lay person that's on the ground living it is as just is just as much an expert as a person who is degreed in, in whatever field I'm writing about. So I wanted those three elements covered. And I was able to do that. And I think I was really shocked by the conversation I had with um, the sister who's a doula in Macomb, Mississippi. Her just telling me that women there are afraid of birthing at the one hospital because so many Black women have literally died there giving birth. Um, that, that was kind of hard to stomach, but it, it's a reality for a lot of communities around this country. What is the process of actually putting words on paper like for you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> what is the process like? So yeah. I, be I believe in taking really good notes. I am a note taker. You will never catch me completing an interview without a notepad. Just because we have trans transcribing apps nowadays, it does not mean you should not take notes because when I take these notes, I can easily go back and see, okay, where did I put an asterisk? Okay, boom, that's my quote. Now that my audio file is in my transcription app, 
let me then find the quote that I, I marked on my notebook in the transcription app and it just makes life way easier. So yeah, I pretty much work around my quotes and make sure I'm covering themes that I feel are important to the story. Now, turnover time, it really depends. Sometimes I'm working ahead and I'm writing a story this particular week for next week. So I have a little bit of time to play with the piece. Other times I may have a shorter turnover. So maybe about two days, I'm writing things out pretty quickly. I mentioned before that it seemed like you had a good handle on what you want this beat to be. What do you want this beat to be? I want this beat to be, and I'll, I'll say for myself, I want my reporting to be a catalog that someone can go to when they want to understand how racism is impacting the health outcomes of Black Americans. And I want them to be able to understand this topic from a historic perspective, such as how the Black community was targeted by big tobacco when it came to menthol cigarettes. So they should be able to understand, okay, this is what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and how it's impacting us today in 2024. But then also from an anecdotal perspective, what are Black Americans saying about their lived experiences? This person in New York told me the X, Y, and Z about her experience giving birth, how it was traumatic. But then you go down south to Alabama, and this man is telling me he's having trouble accessing health care. When he's going to the doctor, he's being discriminated against. Just so people understand, it is not a one-off chance that somebody is being harmed by this system, but it's actually systemic. It's all over. So a few years ago, uh, my mom read a book about Henrietta Lacks, and she referred me to it. And I finally did read it last year. And when I did, I was kind of blown away by everything uh, that I learned as I as I went through it. Uh, about a year and a half ago, you did a big piece on the Henrietta Lacks case. This is a fairly well-known story now, or at least more well-known than it had been. It became a best-selling book and a movie about scientific research that was done on her cells in the early 1950s after she died and how the family saw no benefits from the work that was done. Basically, the cells were stolen from them. There were lawsuits. Those were, I believe, recently resolved. And you got interviews with people that were close to that case. What was the experience of doing that story like? Writing the story about Henrietta Lacks' journey to justice felt like a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience as a reporter. Because her story is so well-known, Black folks have galvanized behind her family for generations, hoping that she would get the justice that she deserves. So I was contacted by um, attorney Ben Crump's legal, his team, and they were asking me if I wanted to cover it. And I jumped on it and had the opportunity to speak with her grandson, Ron Lacks. And he just recalled moments in his family where they would share stories with him about what happened to her and also how the discovery was made concerning her cells being stolen. You referenced earlier that you wanted history to be a big part of the beat. We were just talking about that. Are there other history-related stories? You mentioned the menthol cigarettes one as well that you're particularly um, proud of in terms of what you've done? That's a good question. It is my plan and my hope to incorporate more history into my reporting so that people understand how we got to where we are, um, especially with 
all that is going on in schools right now, public schools in particular, to erase Black history and really to erase American history. I think we get ourselves in trouble when we try to separate the two. Because whether we like it or not, we're not living in two separate nations. We're in one nation. And Black folks have been just as much a part of the inception of this country as uh, white folks and even Native Americans, if we're going to keep it real. So, yeah, it's just important for me. I think justice has to be served for the people that are no longer here, but that suffered. And one way to do that is incorporating their stories into our present day reporting. What- What are some of the different things that you're continuously tracking for your beat besides the history? I am focused on keeping my ears on the ground at all times concerning a number of topics. As Black maternal and infant care is something that's really important to me. I've also been tracking the menthol ban pretty closely. I've been reporting on it for over a year now, giving people the history, but also keeping people up to date with what the White House is saying about it, what the FDA is saying, if they're going to ban menthol cigarettes. We know they are. That is what has been reported. But we're kind of in a standstill right now. So, yeah, I mean, just for me, it's important to keep the community informed on issues that impact them directly. And the menthol cigarette ban is just one issue that greatly impacts us. What is a reader response to the work that you've done like? It's a good question. I've had a pretty good response to the work that I've done over the years. Sometimes it's folks tweeting at me saying, hey, you did a great job. Um, Sometimes it's an email. I think one of the times that touched me most is when I was working at um, the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And I wrote a story about a young lady. I believe she was 19. She was shot and killed in a club one night. She left behind a daughter who's fairly young, definitely younger than four years old. And again, being a local reporter is way different than being a national reporter. When you're local, you're right around the corner from the people that you're writing about. So oftentimes they have your phone number, they can get to you quickly. So that's exactly what happened. When that story went out, it was viral. And one of my previous sources, a woman who had retired from um, a company, she had a a ballerina, a, a ballet company, She called me up and she was like, hey, I just read your story about this young girl whose mother was killed. I would like to give her a lifetime membership to my ballet school. And that that made me cry in my car because I realized this little girl now has a shot at healing in a way that that other girls may not get. An impact through art. And you mentioned earlier how important art has been to you in your life. How do you manage, you you talked about your mental health. How do you manage your mental health these days? Wow. In all of the years that I've been doing reporting, I'm still learning how to manage my mental health. It's really challenging. And if you're not careful, I've learned it can consume you. But in, in the history of resistance work in this country, folks have managed to prioritize joy as much as they prioritize the work. And I am learning right now in this moment how important that is. So tonight, when we get off of our call, I'm just going to go to the movies. I'm going to pick a movie and I'm going to sit back and chill without worrying about what I have to do on a Monday. But anyway, what does being a journalist mean to you? To me, being a journalist means 
having the responsibility to create the first draft of history. When I was in college in J school, that is something that was constantly put into our minds to remember that you are creating the first draft of history. A hundred years from now, when people are wondering what was happening between Biden and Trump, what was happening in the Black Lives Matter movement, what was happening with all of those mass school shootings, mass police shootings, they're going to go to newspapers to get those answers. And so there's definitely a responsibility um, that comes with this role. What's the best part of the job? The best part of being a journalist is being able to amplify the voices of people who have always had a voice. They're not voiceless. They've always had a voice, but they just were never given a microphone. I've talked with countless people who have healed through our conversation, who have found purpose in our interviews and who just felt like they were heard. And that's, that's a priceless feeling to give somebody that opportunity. Now, you mentioned the movies before. You have experience in filmmaking. It looks like a lot of it comes from your time at Howard, based on what I saw on your website. You had one in particular with a haunting score, four minutes capturing the lives of seven Black people going through different things within their lives. And within 30 to 40 seconds each, you get a pretty good picture of very quickly. You also did a feature on a woman whose right to vote as a felon was reinstated, and she talked about her experience. And the two common things that I noticed with those was you pack a lot into a pretty quick time frame. Those are two. There are others. How does the filmmaking experience, how do you view it for yourself, and how does that work its way into your writing? I believe filmmaking and written stories go hand in hand. The two are just transferable and I almost feel like an injustice is done when we don't allow our stories to take up space in, in multimedia ways. I personally love podcasting as much as I love filmmaking, as much as I love the written story, as much as I love photography. Nowadays, as a national reporter, I don't get as much opportunity to be behind the camera as I am behind the keyboard, but hopefully pretty soon I'll be able to hop back into that. Is there, is there still an aspiration to do some stuff with filmmaking? There is. I actually have, you can't see them, but I have two photos on my wall, just some photography I've done. But yeah, I actually want to get into directing, maybe not so much producing, but get into some directing. Now. Well, it seemed like you, you made very specific directional choices in the one that I mentioned, the, the film about the seven Black people in four minutes, and that definitely stood out as I was going through it. What are some other journalism issues that you're most passionate about? Well, <laughs> we could be here another, <laughs> a whole hour on that question. I think I'll just harp a little bit more on what I said earlier about ethics. Ethics is really important. As much as we cover trauma as reporters, I don't think that there's enough trauma reporting training. I certainly didn't have any at the same time, there's not enough care given to reporters who report on trauma. So for me, I had to come up with my own techniques of how to approach people who are, who are dealing with grief, who are dealing with death, who are dealing with loss. And it took time to, to, to come up with my own tools and skills. And I had to learn that, hey, you have to open your heart up to people 
You can't just parachute into their neighborhood and expect for them to open themselves to you when you're not opening yourselves to them. And I think that kind of touches on this concept of objectivity that I personally am, am not a fan of. I don't think you have to totally separate yourself emotionally from the situation to be a good reporter. I just think you need to be responsible and, and check your biases. That's been a common theme of the more than 150 interviews that we have done throughout this podcast. Tell us about the fellowship that you have. Absolutely. I was accepted into University of Southern California's Center for Health Journalism National Fellowship for 2023. I'm currently finishing up my project as we speak. This program is really great. They offer funding to reporters around the country to produce a project over about six months on any given subject. So I've been working on something pretty cool that will be coming out in about February. Nice. Very nice. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Absolutely. I would like to salute Nicole Hannah-Jones for the amazing work she's been doing with the 1619 Project and beyond. She had she helped found the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting, and that organization launched me. It was my launching pad as a college student in D.C. She embraced me. Uh, Ron Nixon embraced me, and they just gave me the tools of the trade when it comes to investigative reporting, which I believe is key. We need more young people being exposed to um, this long-form, in-depth reporting to get more issues solved. And she just won an Emmy as well. Yes. Yep. Alexa Imani Spencer, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your work. We will certainly be following it moving forward. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.